Good morning again. Good to see you guys. If you join us online, uh, and I know there's actually uh, some new people joining us online. Got to meet one this last week. Uh, awesome to have you guys here today with us as well. Um, I also want to celebrate something. Uh, there are some new people in the room because today we are having a baptism after worship. Uh, Jesse Hanna is getting baptized. Super excited about that. And then actually, after the the um, the third service, we're going to have uh, a father and daughter, um, Mike and Juliana Schmidt, baptized as well. So that's awesome and exciting. And you know this 500 for Jesus that we're praying about, that we're looking towards. Just want to inform you guys: there's three more folks who are who are going to be a part of that. There's a lot more to come. Hope that you're praying. Hope that your alarm's set. Hope that you're ready to see Jesus move. All right, today is uh, week two of our, of our Christmas series, Hope Has a Name. Hope Has a Name. And today's message is titled, When You Doubt Your Hope. Um, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 11 and uh, talk about experience I think many of us have, um, have had. And uh, I want to give credit where credit is due. There's a man named Lee Strobel who wrote a very famous book called The Case for Christ, which was largely uh, his journey as a journalist and a skeptic, where he began to doubt his own doubts, and he came to a real faith in Jesus. And some of what I'm going to share today was inspired by some of his work. And so I just want to give him credit. I hope it's helpful to you. And, uh, and I'd like to pray before we get into it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for every heart and mind and person here with us this morning. Uh, Lord, we come before you um, needing uh, to worship, made for uh, a Sabbath, knowing that you, you, you meet us here and you uh, want to meet us here and you meet us in your word and you speak in your word. And so as we open it and we explore this um, experience of doubt, would you speak to our minds and our hearts in a way that helps and 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 in a way that that increases our hope and increases our faith, Lord, may the words of my mouth, meditations of every heart here, be pleasing in your sight, Jesus. You are a rock and our redeemer. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter eleven. I'm going to read out of the NIV this morning, and uh, encourage you to follow along if you got it. If not, it's on the screen. Here we go. When John, John the Baptist, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah. He sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect somebody else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. <clears throat> so this passage pivots around a question that John the Baptist asks. And just to revisit who John the Baptist is, John the Baptist, when we first meet him in the Bible, he is a, he's a wild, wild man. John is, is a wild man. He, uh, he lives in the desert from a young age. He goes off and lives in the desert his diet is this mix of like crunchy, large insects, locusts, and he raids beehives uh, for honey. He wears a raw, like tanned animal skin for clothing. John is, he's a wild man. 
I've been watching this documentary, this real, real reality TV show on Netflix called Alone, where they drop people off in the middle of nowhere and they have to survive, and it's awesome. And as I was writing this message, all I could think was, JB would have dominated alone, right? He'd have been so good at it, right? But uh, John was a wild man, and this wild man had a special part of God's plan, right? He, he was a prophet of God, and actually he's not just any prophet, he's a different kind of prophet, because he is the one that announces to the world the coming of God's Messiah and Jesus Christ. John is actually the one that really breaks open the New Testament and, and is the voice of one crying out of the desert who says, prepare the way for the Lord. He's coming. He's coming. God's Messiah is here. Are you ready? He cries. People, are you ready for, for God's king to be here? And, um, and G, John is actually also really important because he's, he's the first one to publicly announce that, that Jesus is the Messiah. There are other people that know. There are other people that... Um, that recognized who Jesus was, his parents, Zechariah, Anna, in the, in the temple. Um, but John is really the first one to point at Jesus and said, this is him. This is the guy. Jesus shows up one day alongside the River Jordan, and John uh, points at him and looks at him and says, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And everybody knows, and then John, who knows this, baptizes Jesus in the, in the Jordan as Jesus is coming back up. Out of the water, the Holy Spirit comes and descends on his head, looking like a dove. And then John hears the audible voice of God speak to Jesus. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So John very much knew who Jesus was. Which makes what we read here in the, this part of Matthew actually kind of surprising and a little bit confusing. Because think about what we just read in the context of everything I just shared. John is asking, who are you, Jesus? He sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you still the one to come? Are you still the Messiah? Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? John asks Jesus. And, I, and, and, and you read that and you say, what? Why? What's happening with this man. This is not the man of fiery confidence and conviction. This is the man, this is a man who now very appears to be wondering, to be not so certain. John is clearly in Matthew 11, a man dealing with doubt. Have you all ever dealt um, with doubt when it comes to your faith, when it comes to who Jesus is? Uh, I think Many of us have. Actually, in fact, this may seem strange to you, but when I first read Matthew 11 the very first time and saw John have this, this question, it was actually, for me, um, encouraging. Because here is this giant of faith, this spiritual juggernaut, and he is sitting there, once very, very convicted about who Jesus was, wrestling with his doubt wondering who Jesus is. Here's John dealing with the same kind of doubt as sometimes me, and I bet sometimes you. You know, Lee Strobel, uh, in his writings about this, said he's convinced that there are only three kinds of Christians. He says, those who have doubted, those who have doubted, who have not yet doubted but will, and those who have shut off their brains completely. And I want to be honest, I actually 
very much, for the most part, agree with him. I think that doubt is part of the Christian journey, and, and it's, it, it's clear that there are some things at the heart, at the center, at the core, at the foundation of Christian faith that are not things that we just readily believe, that are extra, extraordinary, that we have to understand and get to a point of belief even to begin the Christian journey. Like, for instance, Jesus' resurrection, right? The very centerpiece of Christian faith. Let me ask you, how many people do you know that have been raised from the dead, right? It's Christmas time. Here's another one in our creeds, really important. The virgin birth, born of the Virgin Mary, Jesus. How many um, teenage girls do we believe when they tell us, I just got pregnant and I had nothing to do with it, right? Like, like there's some big, some, some big hurdles, intellectual hurdles right from the get-go, uh, and then a lot of the doubting that we do in, in our lives actually has to do with having an experience that for whatever reason doesn't align with what we anticipated Christian faith to be like. For example, right, you um, uh, take every precaution you can during coronavirus. You stay home. You're super safe. You don't put anybody else in a position where they're unsafe. And then somehow, in a way you don't even know, you get sick, or your friend gets sick, or someone you love gets sick, and they end up passing. And now you have doubts. You have to deal with the doubt and understand how to deal with that. Or, for instance, you um, uh, are a person who tries to play by the rules, do, do right by other people. In fact, you go above and beyond to love your neighbor as yourself and make sacrifices to make that happen. And then one day... You find yourself in a situation that is horribly unjust and terribly unfair, and it's not going to ever right. And you are sitting there wondering, God, how are you going to do me like that? Right? You're dealing with doubt. Or there's another experience. You have a person who's highly impactful in your own faith journey, who you look up to, who makes a, a meaningful difference in who you are as a follower of Jesus. And then you discover later that they have some very public moral failing. And you got to deal with that. And you got to deal with doubt. Whatever form doubt comes in, I think every single one of us deals with some forms of doubt. And I think the temptation uh, is to have this reluctance about it, to kind of not to be embarrassed about it, to not talk about it. We don't like to talk about doubt. And so we, we try to ignore it or we push it to the side or deny that it exists. And let me tell you, that is not what I want you to do with your doubts. That's not what I think we need to do with our doubts. I think what we need to do is take them and hold them up and look at them right in the face. Because when we do that, I think what we'll find is our doubts are actually usually not nearly as scary as they might appear. And two, a lot of times what we think we're looking at is different. We don't actually understand what doubt is or what it does. And we have misconceptions about doubt. And I actually want to work through three pretty common misconceptions about doubt um, here in the second movement of the message. And let me introduce the first one like this. I had a, stru- a friend who um, walked away from Christian faith uh, with his own skepticism uh, through in college and into his early years of adulthood before ultimately coming back to faith. And he had an experience 
that he, that he remembers actually kind of being one of the things that uh, started some of this. He was fifth or sixth grade. He was in Sunday school with his teacher, and he started expressing to her that he struggled to believe, uh, he just understand how on earth a person who had been paralyzed their entire life could just suddenly get up and walk, like we read Jesus doing and performing miracles in the New Testament. And he was just saying, I don't, I don't understand this. And he was asking questions, and he kept asking questions and digging, and he was trying to understand. And his teacher probably got frustrated with her, but ultimately frustrated with him, but ultimately ended up scolding him uh, and saying, we don't need to doubt. We just need to have more faith. And, and that's what he remembered. And, you know, he doesn't fault her um, for that. Uh, she was doing her best. So many of us just do what God calls us to do and try our best within it. And, uh, and she, she probably didn't know what else to do. And so he and um, I, I would suggest we all give her this thing that Jesus talks about all the time that's really important in Christian faith. You guys know what it is? Grace, good. We got grace. Um, but uh, he also said he encountered, in her, he thinks in her and other people, this misconception maybe was driving the response that she had, response that many of us have, and it's this. Here's the first misconception about doubt. Doubt is the opposite of faith. Doubt is the opposite of faith. The doubt's over here, and that faith's over here, and that the two don't, they don't, they don't come alongside each other. They're opposites. They're opposed to one another. And, um, and let me tell you, uh, I think that's a misconception. I think it absolutely is a wrong understanding of doubt. And it's, it's, it's a misconception of faith as well. Because think about this. What is the opposite of faith? No faith. It's actually pretty uh, simple, right? What's the opposite of belief? unbelief, right? Not doubt. Doubt interacts with faith, but it's actually something entirely different, okay? And here is really the best definition I've encountered from doubt. It comes from a fellow named Os Guinness, who, um, who did a little word study on the word doubt, and this is what he discovered. Doubt comes from a word meaning two, two things. To believe is to be in one mind and accepting something is true. To disbelieve is also to be in one mind about rejecting it. But to doubt is to waver between the two. To believe and disbelieve at the same time at once and so to be in two minds. Is that helpful? Do you see that? Like, um, when we doubt... What's happened is that we just aren't as fully convinced as we were a moment ago when suddenly we got this new information or had this other experience, right? Um, there, there's something that has caused us to stagger a little bit, and now our faith and understanding of the world is like an old GPS. It's recalibrating, right? We're just trying to find our footing again where we go on this path. Um, and, and maybe that doubt is with us for a moment, and maybe that doubt is with us for a long season. But let's be clear, doubt doesn't mean that you're done. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. 
And that leads me to say something that I think is really important for some people to hear, and I hope it lifts the weight off some shoulders. But you can still have faith and wrestle with doubt. You hear me? You can be a a very faithful follower of Jesus. You can know Christ, and you can still have some doubts that you're turning over in your mind. In fact, I would even go further and say, we don't need to have everything hammered out in our Christian faith to have a full, robust, complete belief in Christ. And, um, and I, I, will, I will even go further and say this. I think faith doesn't mean the absence of questions or concerns. I actually think the fact that we have questions and confer- concerns is evidence of real faith. Because if you aren't wrestling, what are you trying to hold on to? You're holding on to your faith. That's why you're wrestling and wondering. Otherwise, you've moved to the point of disbelief. And, and, and why struggle if you're not exercising belief? Doubt is actually an evidence that you have faith, which, which is just really important. All that to say doubt and faith are not opposites. Here's the second uh, misconception that I would, would talk about. Inevitably does damage. Sometimes uh, people think that doubt, it always ends up doing damage. So therefore, we don't want to have any doubt. And um, I want to actually say that I do think that there are some scenarios where there's some truth to this. Uh, The doubt does inevitably do damage. Um, And just to share an experience here and not to step into controversy and not to deny a very real reality for some people. But uh, when I was in high school, one of my friends dad's lost his job and ultimately ended up losing his career because he was um, accused of a sexual indiscretion. And um, it was ultimately, it became very clear it was an injustice and a terrible shame because after they did the investigation and they did all the work and dotted every I and crossed every T, he was fully and completely exonerated from what the accusations were. And this lined up with every person who knew him who said there was no history of this at all. But one person at one point said one thing and a couple other people jumped onto it and he lost his job and he lost his career. And I think this is what I think is the hardest about it. For the rest of his life, there's this shadow of doubt that rests over him because of this accusation. And... Um, Uh, that kind of doubt cast on a person's life does do damage. I want to be clear about that. And when um, it comes to faith, I do think that there is sometimes this similar concern that we carry over, right? We say, even if it's not true, when you bring up doubts about God, you're defaming God, right? And you're bringing into somebody else's mind concerns that they may not have even had. Right. And actually, I, I get that. Like, I think this may be one of the reasons why we keep our doubts to ourselves. And, and it's actually out of concern for other people. Right. If that shadow doesn't exist in their mind, I don't want to bring in the darkness. Right. I, I get that. And on one level, uh, I, I see some wisdom there. There are things that I don't want my own children to have to wrestle with in their formative years about the love of God and about the love of my mother the, 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 my mother, the, their mother, and I have for them, right? <laughs> my mother loves them too, right? But, um, <laughs> but, uh, 
And then, honestly, there are some relationships where uh, playing around and, and bringing in doubt isn't a healthy thing um, on the, if it's done regularly, like in marriage. We don't need to be doubting the trust or the commitment of the one who's given their life to us, right? Um, but what I want to point out is the problem there isn't actually the introduction of doubt. There's no sin in having a thought. The, the problem happens when we don't deal with that thought in a healthy way. The question is, how are we going to respond to the doubt when it enters into our lives? And if we respond poorly, that is when doubt is able to do damage. Uh, if you were to ask me, when does doubt turn into unbelief? The answer I would give you would be, when you let it turn into unbelief. And, and that's what I want to say. Doubt and it doesn't inevitably do damage. In fact, if we, if we lean into it and seek the truth, it can actually very much make our faith stronger. Last week we talked about that, but that's, that's the second misconception uh, I, I want to address. Here's the third. Doubt is a Christian problem. The doubt, this experience of doubt, is something that Christians deal with, and maybe not so much other people. Um, you know, I went through my own long season of doubt in college and ultimately came back to faith. Uh, this was one of the most helpful realizations that I had. That the doubts that I had uh, didn't go away in, in another position or belief or faith. I just had to deal with them in a different way. In other words, every single person has to deal with doubt from whatever position they find themselves in. Um, C.S. Lewis had a really good quote uh, about this. And if you don't know C.S. Lewis' history, he started as a skeptic, came to faith uh, much later in life. And, and this is what he said after he came to faith. Now that I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. <laughs> I, I love that quote, because here's this man speaking from one position that he stood in, and another position that he's standing in, and realizing that he has moods, and he has doubts, and they existed in both places. All that to say, it's not a Christian problem. And another way to say this is every worldview has elements that if you lean into them, there are questions that arise. There are reasons for doubting that worldview, just to give one. If you're an atheist, and yet you have a very strong sense of right and wrong, I think one of the biggest challenges that you have when you begin to think about where that comes from is it's really, really, really hard, from my perspective, almost impossible, to come up with a morality, an ethic, without a moral lawgiver without a God. And thus, you have doubt on your position. Actually, a number of people come to faith through that very issue. But all that to say, um, Christians are not the only ones wading through the waters of doubt. Everybody is. And, um, and uh, yeah. Okay, here's what I want to talk about now. Um, I want to talk about how we deal with our doubts. If doubts arise in every single person's life, how do we deal with them? How do we respond to them? And I'll offer you three steps. Um, uh, here's the first. I'd encourage you to begin by finding the root of your doubt. I think you have to understand where the doubt that you have in your life comes from. 
And actually, doubt arises from different sources. Most of the time, when we talk about doubt, initially we're talking about something I would call intellectual doubt. Doubts about how we understand things. Um, This is like you're a freshman in college, and you're taking a history course, and you love the professor, and they make an offhanded comment about how the Bible is historically unreliable. That's an intellectual question that you suddenly are going to have to deal with. He has introduced intellectual doubt into an understanding of the scripture that you didn't have before, and now you have homework to do, and that's one source of doubt. A lot of times when we talk about doubt, this is what we're thinking of, but there's two others. Here's uh, another really important uh, kind of doubt, emotional doubt. Sometimes our doubts are actually emotionally driven Actually, far more often, I think, than we tend to realize. Our doubts are related to what we are feeling or sometimes what we are not feeling. Like, for instance, when your life gets really, really hard and you're overwhelmed and you're frustrated, and then you start to wonder about the goodness of God. That is actually a situationally, emotionally driven form of doubt. It may show up as an intellectual question. Is God really good? But it was driven by the emotional experience that you were having. Um, I think here also about another form of emotional doubt, like when people come to faith for the first time and uh, they have this really powerful moving experience. And for weeks, maybe months, maybe even a year, they uh, are, are having this incredible work of God in their lives where they're tangibly experiencing the presence of God and moving with God towards a better life. And then, because Christianity is a marathon and not a sprint, at some point, that begins to slow down. They get tired, and they start wondering about things, and, and they, they experience a challenge, maybe, and they look back on everything that happened before that, and they begin to say, Was my faith even real in the beginning, right? That is emotionally driven doubt, and you have to deal with it differently. requires a different approach. Here's the last one. Sometimes our doubts are what actually Strobel called volitional doubts. Volitional, and that's volition as in the will, as in related to the choices that we make. And what he's pointing out very wisely is that sometimes the doubt that we have is related to choices that we are making that damage our relationship with God or the reasons we have for believing. And just to share an experience here that I had, um, when we were missionaries in Ukraine, Shannon and I, we, there was a young man who was a part of our ministry, and I really liked him and uh, spent a lot of time with him. And then one day he just kind of stopped showing up, and I hadn't seen him for weeks. It was months, and I called him, and I said, Hey, man, what's up? I haven't seen you. Are you okay? And he said, uh, you know, um, you know, David, I'm, I'm starting to wonder about Christian faith. I'm having some doubts, uh, about God and about, um, all kinds of things. And I said, okay, you know, uh, why don't we go sit down and talk about it? I'd love to listen. I'd love to, to, to hear what you're thinking. And he said, sure, sure. And then over the course of the next week, weeks, months, I tried to pin this guy down to get a time to meet with him and talk to him. And he kept avoiding me. And he wouldn't set up a time. 
And I was like, what is going on? And then months later after that, I, I came to found, find out that um, he had gotten involved with this girl. And this girl wasn't involved in some good things. And so he had gotten involved in some ungood things. And, uh, and he had gotten himself into a little bit of trouble. And that, let me tell you, when he said he had intellectual struggles, that was not the reality of the situation. He had volitional doubt that was presenting as an intellectual struggle. And actually, months later, he, he later on confessed that to me. And, and what I just want to point out here is that we can all do this. We can all make choices that cause us to doubt the realities that, that, that we once very deeply believed. And it is far more related to our choices than the realities themselves. And that's another source of doubt. All right? Here's the second step that we have to take. We need to share our doubt. Share your doubt and ask God and others for help. Okay, uh, back to John the Baptist, the scripture that we read. You know, John actually models a really healthy response to doubt in the scripture because he doesn't hold it in. He doesn't keep it to himself. He actually shares it with his disciples because he tells them to go ask Jesus, and then he takes his questions to Jesus himself. He says again, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? And what I want to say is one of the most dangerous things that you can do with your doubt is to just sit with it on your own, to stew in it, to, to, to be isolated and, and totally independent in, in dealing with your doubt. Um, emotional doubt is especially powerful in this way. And when you're tired and you're anxious, and maybe if you're even battling a form of depression, right, it's amazing how much stronger the doubts that you experience can appear. And I want to take note here, um, John the Baptist, I don't know if you caught it, but there was a detail at the beginning of the first verse in verse two that we read. Does anybody remember where he was when he asked this question? In prison. He's in jail. Let me tell you the background there. Um, John, uh, for whatever reason, called out King Herod, who was the ruler over that area at the time. And the reason is because King Herod had married his brother's wife, stolen his brother's wife, and divorced his own wife to make it happen. And so John, in commentating on this, said, Herod, you're depraved. And Herod said, John, go to jail, go directly to jail, do not pass go, do not collect $200, he put him in jail. Honestly, Herod wanted to kill him, and John had so much uh, influence among the people that Herod didn't feel like he could. And so, so think about this, think about the context here. Here is John sitting in prison, probably going to die when Herod figures it out, he does die later, and, and now He's wondering about the reality of what he once knew. Here's Jesus who's come and he knew, but all these things that he anticipated out of the Messiah aren't happening. There's not justice that's come. God isn't renewing Israel. In fact, John is experiencing an injustice and his life's about to end. How could this man not doubt in this moment, right? But John doesn't sit there and stew in it. He shares it. He asks Jesus himself, are you the one? And then notice what Jesus does. 
he offers him evidence to reaffirm John's belief. He responds to him. He says, John, miracles are happening. The good news is being proclaimed to the poor. God's word is coming to pass. I'm here. You can still have faith. God actually responds to our doubt, just like he did John here. But this is so key. Your doubts are going to look different in the darkness than they do the light. Okay, so what we've got to do is bring our doubts into the light, and we've got to bring them to the light of the world himself in Jesus. Um, it is amazing to me how, um, sometimes in my own experience, how when I'm weighed down with something and wrestling with something, I can walk into church and pray and sing and, and let God really know what's at the bottom of my heart and then walk out on that Sunday with a renewed spirit. And, and feeling incredible freedom and just everything being lifted. It is amazing to me how in prayer, I hope you have the chance to experience this, when you pray honestly before the God who knows whatever we're struggling with, if, you, if you're angry, if you're telling him all your frustrations, how you can end up that prayer free and, and in a way clearer than you had ever been before. And don't forget good godly people in your life here. It is a gift when you have a friend that can sit there and listen to you and, and hear you and talk with you and let you wrestle, but then at the same time tell you when you're locked up in your own echo chamber and can break the walls of that doubt. And, and that's the second step we need to do that. Here's the last step. Hold your remaining questions while holding on to Christ. <clears throat> What, we need to hold whatever remains in our doubts while at the same time holding on to Jesus. You know, if you zero in on the source of your doubt and act accordingly, I think what many of us have found is that there are doubts that come and there are doubts that actually go and they're gone. We don't have to deal with them. Questions can be answered. Hearts can be calmed down. Sometimes it is as simple as making more faithful choices in our lives. However, I do also believe that there are things and there are questions where you're never going to get all the answers and there are going to be tensions that never fully resolve. And I actually have come to understand that's a very logical thing because we who are finite, limited beings are never going to be able to wrap our minds around the creation of an infinite and unlimited God. There's got to be mystery in that gap. Right? And it doesn't mean that we don't mature and come to find more clarity. It just means that on this side of heaven, there are things that we're waiting to, to say to Jesus. Can you explain this to me? Okay? Um, at the same time, what I want to tell you is those tensions that we hold, we don't have to hold them alone. Okay? We were made to live in a relationship with God, and Jesus holds those things with us if we will let him. Right? We... Uh, we have our hopes held in the person and promises of Jesus. And it's big enough for the tensions that exist as well. And so here's where we hang our hope. We may not know all the answers, but we know the God who does. Here's where we hang our hopes. We may not have all the knowledge, but we know the one who knows all, right? It's the God who loves us and who gave his life for us and who we are able to know through his death and resurrection, his gift of grace and the power of the spirit. And what I believe is when we, uh, when we are able to hold on to those things, the things that we do know, 
they end up ultimately being greater, much greater than the things that we don't. And at the back end, we actually end up having a much more clarified hope when we lean into our doubts. That was my experience. It's been the experience of many other Christians. I just want to have this quote here. There was a a fellow named Rufus Jones from 100 years ago who, who kind of brought this together like this. A rebuilt faith is superior to an inherited faith that has never stood the strain of a great testing storm. If you have not clung to a broken piece of your old ship in the dark night of the soul, your faith may not have sustaining power to carry you through to the end of the journey. Okay? It's a great quote. But if you do, if you have held on to that peace, what I think you'll find is that suffering leads to perseverance, and perseverance leads to character. And what did we say last week? Character leads to hope in Jesus. I'm praying that for you guys. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for every doubt that we have that we're able to offer to you and give to you and you meet us in them and you respond to us. Lord, I thank you for the gift of faith that we have to have in not knowing everything, Lord. But Jesus, I pray that we would use our minds and we would engage the questions that we have. And Lord, by the power of your spirit, we would know that the hope we have in you is so much greater and so much better than anything else in this world. And I pray that we would give our lives to you. You gave your life for us. Let us live in response to that. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.